Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. At that time, the authority, yeah, he totally explained that it's a physicist called Clauser who described the atmosphere at that time, and it was related to the Cold War because there were these orthodoxies, you see, of course, very anti-communist orthodoxy, the Cold War mentality, and then Boom mm-hmm. was communist, so that was a problem. He had been a victim of McCarthyism, but the physicists would like to mention him and the world. Sorry for the delay, everyone. Been busy, busy, busy. Interview starts at around 72 minutes in. Enjoy the show. Yeah, so if you have two slits that you let marbles go through, they get two slits in the receiving screen on the other side. Right. Whereas if you let a wave go through two slits, you get this interference pattern. Right. And so what happens when you let an electron go through? The answer is you get an interference pattern. It's more like a wave than a particle. But the real weird thing that they're going to get to eventually is if you let an electron go through two slits but you put little detectors on the slits. So you say, which detect, which slit did the electron go through? Then it always says it goes through one or the other. It never goes through both. And the interference pattern on the other side disappears. You only see the two lines that you would have seen if they were marble-like. So the point is, when you're not looking, the electron is acting like a wave. And when you look at it, the electron acts like a particle. Right. That is the lesson of the double slit experiment. Right. Put a measuring device by one slit to see which one it went through and let it fly. (laughs) But the quantum world is far more mysterious than they could have imagined. When they observed, the electron went back to behaving like a little marble. It produced a pattern of two bands, not an interference pattern of many. The very act of measuring or observing which slit it went through meant it only went through one, not both. The electron decided to act differently, as though it was aware it was being watched. And it was here that physicists stepped forever into the strange never world of quantum events. What is matter? Marbles or waves? And waves of what? And what does an observer have to do with any of this? The observer collapsed the wave function by observing the matter. So, right, and the quantum eraser experiment actually debunked that because it showed that the wave, when split, or the electron, or no, they did this experiment with photons, I'm sorry. They split a photon, and when the photon was split, they had one that was observed and one that wasn't. And they were able to determine that if a photon isn't being observed, it'll have the wave pattern. And if it is observed, it will have a particle pattern before it is observed. So I don't know how they would measure that. Observation. And what, is, what does this have to do with uh, theism? Well, it actually, the, the reason it's the, the, theological is because it shows that 
The universe physically cannot exist without an outside observer. Uh, oh, no. uh, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. While we're on this uh, subject of subatomic <laughs> particles and, and weirdness, I wanted to, I wanted, if you could, illuminate this often misused explanation for the observer effect because you know the the particles waves and you watch them observe them and it changes the reaction it is heavily misunderstood it's misunderstood yes. because people want to attribute it to magic the magic the of the mind and the consciousness looking at it but isn't it in fact just measuring it yes thank you Please explain. Next question. <laughs> no, play, explain to people because I'm so tired of Joe, talking you're to hippies. Good. Joe, you're good. It just drives you me gotta nuts. You got to carry your people with you. I try. What, what, what are they, where are when, they coming when from? I'm where are you pulling? What? What? <laughs> Where are you getting your people? I don't know. Uh, well, I, I don't own them for sure. You don't own them. So they're okay. definitely not my people. They vary greatly. <laughs> than you think. Okay. All right. You ready? Yes. So I'm looking at you. The only reason why I can see you is because there's light reflecting off of your face, your body, into my eyes. So there's light. Okay, so we'll here it is. I'm looking at you. Okay. All right? Yes. And I see you. I want to know where you are. So I turn on the lights and I say, there you are. All right. Now. Let's make you tinier. Let's make you mini-me, okay, like in the movie. Um, right. So now there's a tiny version of you, a mini-me version of Joe Rogan. Now you're little. I turn on the lights. You're still there, okay? Okay. Because if the lights are not on, I can't see you. I don't know where you are. Right. It's that simple. Okay. Okay? When you start becoming the size of molecules, right on down to the size of an atom. And I ask the question, where is Joe Rogan the atom? And I turn on the light to see you there, because I think you're there. The light, the photon comes in, hits your atom, and pops you into another location. The very act of trying to measure your position prevents me from measuring your position. And it has have jack shit to do with your consciousness, or your mind, or your eyes, or anything it has to do with the fact that to know you're there some information has to come from you to me like shining a light on you and the smaller you are the more susceptible you are to the energy of the light changing your position in space so my question is how you know do like? they you know wait, wait, you know what it's like you ever i don't know if this has still happened you, you a quarter spills out of your pants pocket on the back seat of a car and it's there in the wedge between the bottom and the back seat mm -hmm. and so you try to reach in to get it and the act of reaching for the coin makes the coin move farther away from you ah the act of reaching for it right because you separate you're cushions. separated and it just slides down even further that's not your mind making that happen it's the it's the act of the measurement that is affecting what it is you're trying to measure. And this was discovered in quantum physics and to the point where that's actually, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It's, it's one of the basic foundations of all of quantum physics. Now, if it was just light, it wouldn't be so much of a problem, but it was found that electrons behave the same way. If you send an electron beam of the sort you have in an old fashioned TV and you set it through a pair of slits, you would get a set of diffraction bands on the screen. How could this be reconciled with a materialist view of particles? The standard view that's given of this is the Copenhagen interpretation. A summary of it is given in this quote from Bohr, that in contrast to ordinary mechanics, the new quantum mechanics does not deal with the space-time description of the movement of atomic particles. The difficulties seem to require just that 
that renunciation of mechanical models in space and time, which is so characteristic a feature of the new quantum mechanics. So there in 1934, Bohr seems to be saying we have to chuck out materialism because of these effects, because we can't give a definite position to the particles as they go through slits and other similar circumstances. But in a sense, this is just a recapitulation of Mach. In this variant, the photon has no definite position until it's observed. But that's just a repetition of what, what Mach said about scientific observation in general. He said that all science is just about relationships between instrument readings, relationships between observables, that all science is doing in the end is constructing elaborate mathematical relationships between our sense impressions. Now Lenin objected to this and showing that in the end it reverted to the subjective idealism of Berkeley and ultimately to solipsism. Um, I'm referring to Lenin's criticism and materialism and empirical criticism. Now in the idealist account it's the observer who collapses the wave function, collapses the wave and turns it into a particle, bringing actuality, bringing actuality to potentiality. But the question is, what is the observer? The immediate intuition you're supposed to get from the reference to the observer is that it's a human being that does this. But if you consider the interference pattern, you could say that the observer was the silver iodide on the film or the crystals of silver iodide which when they're hit by a photon turn black. Now suppose you just let a small number of photons through or exposed the film for a short period. You'll only get a thin speckling of silver iodide crystals turning black. Have they really turned black until someone looks at the film? Is it the person looking at the film which collapses the wave function? But since the crystals on the film are macroscopic objects, objects which could be observed under a microscope or a magnifying glass if you wished. It seems we've, we've turned right back to naked Berkeleyism, where things only exist if a human looks at them. Objecting to this, Einstein remarked, you might as well say that the moon doesn't exist when you're not looking at it. It's an absurd position to take when you consider macroscopic objects like the moon. But where does the, the breaking point come? Why should a crystal of silver iodide be something which only exists if someone looks at it? If you once accept the premise that things only exist when you look at them, you might as well extend it to things of arbitrary size. You might as well extend it to the backside of the moon. Did it even exist before the first uh, lunar, lunic probe took a photo of it? There was going right back to 1927, perfectly coherent alternative to the idealist Copenhagen view, which was that developed by de Broglie, who developed a quantum theory of motion whereby a quantum wave going through the slits exerts a force on particles that produces the interference effect. He came up with equations of motions for particles in the wake of this quantum wave, which has them following these wiggly courses. They seem absurd courses to us, since we're used to things going in straight lines. But what he was saying is that there's additional forces exerted on tiny particles by the quantum waves, 
and these quantum waves cause them to deviate from a straight line path. And the paths that they end up in actually are the paths which give rise to the interference fringes on the film. Now, this theory was further developed by Bohm in the 50s, and there are now many textbooks on it. I'm giving an example of Jean Brickmont's textbook here. In the Bohm de Broglie theory, particles have definite determinate positions. It's not like the idealist theory where particles have no position until we observe them. Any non-local effects come about through the interference of the waves, which then act as forces moving the particles into the positions we see them. Here's another textbook, um, Quantum Theory of Motion. The, these theories are actually quite hard going because they rely heavily on fairly abstract forms of classical mechanics, which um, if you haven't been taught them, take quite a while to take in. Now, this wouldn't matter if it were not for the fact that recent experiments have shown that you actually do get the trajectories projected by, uh, predicted by the de Broglie and Bohm theory. This is a uh, 2016 paper showing photon trajectories. And you can see they, in fact, don't follow straight lines. They follow the kind of curved paths that give rise to interference effects predicted by the de Broglie-Bohm theory. Since 1927, there has been a deterministic theory of motion, the de Broglie theory. This theory has led to fruitful results. Um, I'm not going to explain them at the moment, but Bell, the guy who invented Bell's inequality, was a Bohmian. And from Bell's inequality has followed the harnessing of non-locality to things like quantum encryption. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because when you put that detector on the slits, you interacted with the electron and you localized it, right? There was no such thing as the position of the electron. There was no such thing as the answer to the question, did it go through one slit or the other? There was only a cloud. There was only a wave going through. But you affected it, or whatever the detector was, affected it when it looked through the slits to see, did it go through this one or this one? And that effect changed it from being going through both slits to being only going through one. And how does it affect it like that? Well, there's it's what it's what's called quantum entanglement. The detector becomes entangled with the electron, and this is where you get into what I my favorite version of quantum mechanics, which is the many worlds interpretation. The the right way to think about the electron was that cloud, that wave going through. That's the natural thing. The weird thing is that when you look at the different slits, you only see it go through one or the other and it acts like a particle. So how do you explain that? So in other words, our natural intuitive way of thinking about electrons is as particles, little marbles. And quantum mechanics says, no, 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 it's naturally a wave. The weird thing is when it acts like a particle. And if you're a many worlds person, what the answer you give is the following. When you look to see, did the electron go through one slit or the other, you or whatever video camera you had or whatever becomes entangled with the electron 
And what that means is that the wave function of the whole universe, the wave function of both the electron, but also your camera and you and the stars and galaxies and so forth, splits in two. And there is now one branch of the wave function, which, which acts like its own separate world, which says the electron went through the left slit and your camera saw it go through the left slit and it made a little line on the other side. And there's another branch, which says the electron went through the right slit and your camera saw it go through the right slit and it makes a line on the other side. And so they're both still there, but the world's split in two and now you're only in one of them. You don't see the whole world anymore. You managed to make it more confusing. Congratulations. <laughs> you, you screwed my head up even more. I, did that, I understand it less now. That's even more baffling. But the bit you understand is actually true. That's, that's the improvement. <laughs> well, it's a little. The illusion of understanding doesn't count. <laughs> oh, okay. So by not understanding, I understand more. Exactly. Ooh, there you go. Boy. Quantum you motto. have a weird job, dude. <laughs> do. Don't just think about a fantasy tonight. Pick up the phone and call the government. <clears throat> They're working on that right now. They're working on some sort of. Uh, I don't doubt it, man. I, I, I read an you, article. I went on, you want to hear a wild one? All right, I went on, you know, one night fucking smoking. I went on a little YouTube wormhole situation, and somehow, I don't even know if it's a YouTube video or somewhere else, but I wound up on this video that was like, world's smartest kid thinks that CERN blew the world up in 2008. All right, and I'm like, what the fuck? So I go on this video, right, and I'm watching this video, dude. And it's this young kid. He's like, the 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 electrons, I believe, in the in the in the super collider, CERN, that they caused some crazy chain reaction that blew up the universe. But they also weighed, they, they created an atom that weighed too much. And he, it's, oh, the first 20 minutes is also explaining infinite parallel universes. So what? Right here, dude. So this guy had this kid had me fucked up because after I watched this, everything I saw for months was talking about like it would be news guy on the on the news, like I don't know what universe I'm in anymore. Or uh Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Like all these everything I saw for like four or five months after watching this video was like multiverse shit. Like Listen. shit about multiverses, and it's got me fucked up, Joe. I hear you. And it's like it's and then again, everything that came out, there was all these shows I would see or movies or news things about mult the multiverse all of a sudden was everywhere around me. It was fucking nutty, dude. So I'm fucked up about that shit right now. Well, if there was something everything. they could do. If there was something they could do that might open up a door to a parallel universe, you don't think they would do it? Stranger Things, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Say that's this the goal. Stranger that's the Things. Thing. I mean, things are strange, right? It Fucking is Stranger Things. Bizarro world. You know what's the weirdest one? Same crap the, on every like, channel. People have been criticized yeah. on job dots and talked about There's nothing happening. Having different beliefs. I think there's something wrong with the TV. No this update is also called the wave function collapse. Now, this wave function collapse is a problem for the following reason. We have an equation that tells us what the wave function does as long as you do not measure it. It's called the Schrödinger equation. Suppose you have a wave function for a particle that goes right with 100% probability. Then you will measure it right with 100% probability, no mystery here. Likewise, if you have a particle that just goes left, you will measure it left with 100% probability. Okay, but here's the thing. If you take a superposition of these two states, you will not get a superposition of probabilities. You will get 100% either on the one side or on the other. 
The measurement process, therefore, is not only an additional assumption that quantum mechanics needs to reproduce what we observe, it is actually incompatible with the Schrödinger equation. Now, the most obvious way to deal with that is to say, well, the measurement process is something complicated that we do not yet understand, and the wave function collapse is a placeholder that we use until we have figured out something better. But that is not how most physicists deal with it most sign up for what is known as the Copenhagen interpretation. That basically says you're not supposed to ask what happens during measurement. In this interpretation, quantum mechanics is merely a mathematical machinery that makes predictions and that's that. The problem with the Copenhagen interpretation and with all similar interpretations is that they require you to give up the idea that what a macroscopic object, like a detector does, should be derivable from the theory of its microscopic constituents. If you believe in the Copenhagen interpretation, you instead have to buy that what the detector does just cannot be derived from the behavior of its microscopic constituents. Because if you could do that, then you would not need a second equation besides the Schrödinger equation. That you need the second equation then is incompatible with reductionism. It is possible that this is correct but then you have to explain just where reductionism breaks down and why, which no one has done. And without that, the Copenhagen interpretation and its cousins do not solve the measurement problem. They simply refuse to acknowledge that the problem exists in the first place. The many-world interpretation now supposedly does away with the problem of the quantum measurement. It does this by just saying there isn't such a thing as wave function collapse. Instead, many-worlds people say, Every time you make a measurement, the universe splits into several parallel worlds, one for each possible measurement outcome. This universe splitting is also sometimes called branching. Now the real problem is that after throwing out the measurement postulate, the many worlds interpretation needs another assumption that brings the measurement problem right back. The measurement postulate says, update probabilities at measurement to 100%. The detector definition in many worlds says the detector is by definition only the thing in one branch. Now evaluate probabilities relative to this, which gives you 100%. Same thing. And because it's the same thing, you already know that you cannot derive this detector definition from the Schrödinger equation. It's an additional assumption. A derivation is not possible. What the many worlds people are now trying instead is to derive this postulate from rational choice theory. But of course that brings back the macroscopic terms like actors who make decisions and so on. In other words, this reference to knowledge is equally in conflict with reductionism as is the Copenhagen interpretation. And that's why the many worlds interpretation does not solve the measurement problem. And therefore it is equally troubled as all the other interpretations of quantum mechanics. A person may be able to come to different decisions and look like they're free from outside forces controlling what they'll do, but so would a ball falling down a chute that sort of splits off into multiple chutes. Which chute the ball chooses ultimately depends on the shape of the ball, the shape of the chute, and the subtle way the ball was initially placed. You probably wouldn't say that system has free will, or that it's even choosing, but a brain seems to work a very similar way, only with way more shoots designed by DNA, and constantly changing shapes and connections with environmental stimuli. Everything that goes on in the brain and body is governed by phenomena that can be explained using physics models. It's the same atoms and 
molecules interacting in the same way, with the same fundamental forces. None of that seems to be controlled, it just is. Now there's different interpretations of quantum mechanics, maybe it's random and weird, or maybe it's chaotic and we just don't know what's going on. But at any rate, it's not like sometimes quantum objects behave like waves, sometimes they behave like particles, and sometimes they stay at home. No, it looks mostly consistent and predictable. We might say it's deterministic. It's all cause and effect. Or at the very least, it's consistent enough that it looks like it's following fundamental laws or rules. And that includes everything that goes on in our brains and bodies. So then hard determinists might say, okay, there's no such thing as free will. Free will doesn't exist. Another view, compatibilists might say, okay, we get all that, but all that stuff happening inside the skull, all that thought and deliberation, that freedom from outside forces, that is free will. It's just not the universe breaking magic. We maybe assumed it was. Saying free will doesn't exist is like saying value doesn't exist. Value is this attempt to measure what a person wants and is willing to give up or trade for other things. We measure that with dollars, pounds, yuans, yen, shekels. There's nowhere where you can go to hold a dollar. That coin in your hand isn't a dollar, it's just a lump of metal that we have assigned the value of dollar to. While maybe you can't hold a dollar in your hand, it's just a measurement. The concept is useful and measures something important. It would be dumb to just throw away the concept. Where do I stand? Am I a compatibilist or a determinist? First of all, if you're building an identity around what ideas you hold, I think you might be doing ideas bad. I don't know. Surely there's not compatibilist and non-compatibilist ideas. There's only right and wrong, and preferable and non-preferable ideas. Of course, speaking in terms of feminism, determinism, left-wing, right-wing, can communicate a lot really quick, and people can be so solidified in their views that it is kind of like a war. But building an identity around ideas can close ourselves off to ideas that go against the way we think we are. And it's different than saying, I'm a homosexual, because that does seem to be the way a person is. But ideas, they need to be free to change and do battle. And it would be easier to do that when we're not treating ourselves and other people as right or wrong, but ideas as right or wrong. Anyway, where do I stand? I'm not even going to answer. I think the difference between the two is a particularly unsexy one. Because unless if I've misunderstood these two positions, which is quite possible, seems like the sort of thing I'd do, they don't disagree on the observations, they disagree on semantics. But surely, observations are all that matter. The implications come out of the observations and out of the cause and effect and how we feel about it all, not what we're labeling free will. And both positions sort of highlight good conversations. I can't see into your perspective and you can't see into mine. But it's kind of like saying, go look outside and look closely at leaves with a microscope. Are the leaves green or are they made up of little specks of blue and yellow? And let's say they were actually made up of blue and yellow. The hard determinists are going, oh yeah, I guess leaves aren't green. The compatibilists are going, guess what? We already have a word for when blue and yellow light hit your eyeball. We call that green, dumbass. It's green from all regular viewing distances and in every way that matters. What else would you call it? And people into souls are saying, microscopes are the work of the devil. <laughs> well, yeah, in some sense that's true. Even mass murderers were predetermined. But he said they should still be placed in jail. Heisenberg then comes along and proposes the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and says, nonsense. There's uncertainty. You don't know where the electron is. It could be here, here, or many places simultaneously. This, of course, Einstein hated because he said God doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, hey, get used to it. Einstein was wrong. God does play dice. Every time we look at an electron, it moves. There's uncertainty with regards to the position of the electron. So what does that mean for free will? It means in some sense we do have some kind of free will. No one can determine your future events given your past history. There's always the wild card. 
There's always the possibility of uncertainty in whatever we do. <laughs> why do you think the way you think, and why are you going to say the next thing you're going to say? Yeah. And is it how much of it is biological? How much of it is your life experience? How much of it is information that's dancing in your head? How much of it is you interacting with me? The last thing that I've said to you. Here's why I think it's boring, because there's two questions. One question is how does the world work? Mm -hmm. The other question is, what words should we attach to how the world works? Mm -hmm. And the first one is interesting. And yes. The second one is kind of boring. But I am what philosophers call a compatibilist when it comes to free will, which, which is, I don't think that I have some ways of thinking my way into overcoming the laws of physics, right? Like, I'm made of atoms, made of uh, particles that obey the laws of physics. If I talk about myself as a large collection of atoms and particles obeying the laws of physics, then clearly there's no free will. There's just the solution to the... But guess what? That's not a fruitful way to go through your life in terms of talking about human beings. Every person in the world, no matter how anti-free will they are, talks about people as if they make decisions. If you don't know the atoms and molecules in somebody's body and you're not infinitely computationally powerful so you can predict the future, then it's correct to talk about people as agents who make decisions. We call that free will. This is where the it actually becomes interesting uh, to talk about the vocabulary we use, right? Yes. Because it becomes very, very hard to know where to attach the word I or you when you're talking about this. Like, you, you, we tend to say, I made a decision. So that's the question. Like, is, does it make sense to say, I could have decided otherwise? And if you define yourself as the following list of atoms and particles in a certain configuration, then no. Then the laws of physics said that that was going to happen. That's not a useful way of talking. I chose to have the coffee because my atoms were in a following configuration or something like that, right? That's like talking about us as humans and then switching vocabularies to talking about us as atoms, and that's where you get in trouble. Yeah, it's, it's a weird reductionist take on what it means to be a person that thinks. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if, if you say, like, there's no free will in your atoms, then I'm with you. I'm on, on board. But no one in the world goes through life that way. Yeah. Well, and you could break that all the way down to creativity, right? Like what when someone sits down and writes something, like where's all that coming from? Is yeah. That so I think, again, there determinism is, as well. Right. right now, the brain is kind of just a mystery box to us. And there's so much we don't know. Put someone in an MRI in a brain scanner and say, yeah, you know what? Tomorrow they're going to rob a bank. Do you arrest them? Is that is that enough? Right. The fact that their brain was hooked up to uh, to mm. violate the law in the future is that enough to assign personal responsibility to them for that? Or do you mm. or do you do the opposite and say, well, it's going to happen no matter what. We can't really blame them. If you do catch this thought process is before the actual action takes place, is it impossible to correct that thought process with education or some sort of awareness training or something where you could shift the consciousness and all, uh, abruptly sort of disassemble determinism at its most problematic point? The scientific method is, is a form of philosophy. It's actually a deductive methodology used to test an individual's hypothesis for truth value, whether the proposition actually obtains truth value. So what we can see is that science is a body of knowledge. Science is not the way the world is. Science is how we think the world is. Science relies upon human engagement within reality to come to knowledge claims about reality. Let's think about it. When a scientist comes across limestone, 
what do they think of it? What do they understand it to be? They understand it to be a rock mineral consisting primarily of calcium carbonate. And eventually we will reach the point in which we will hit energy, where all of these fundamental particles are actually expressions of energy. And since energy cannot be created or destroyed, all of this energy is the result of energy transferals that have occurred all the way back to the Big Bang. So any limestone that you come across is the result of the Big Bang, just as any other material substance that you come across is again the result of prior causes leading back to the first cause, or an infinite regression of causes. So if science is the analysis of objects, and in particular material objects, what is an object? How do we understand it to be material? And in fact, this conceptualization process is actually the foundation of this entire universe, material or not. This means that the material universe is fundamentally dependent upon human idea. What a cloud, a moon, or a star is, is not something given to us by our perception, but is something constructed within our minds and then applied to reality. There is no such thing as a star, a moon, or a cloud in reality. If we take reality to be that raw sense data, that pure experiential existence, what reality is in that case is undefined and undefinable. And so at the bottom of all normativity, of science itself, of this objective investigation, we will see consciousness, we will see thought, we will not see a world that is external, we will see the world that is actually internal in many ways. And since this normativity cannot be divorced from our experiences of reality, when we try to conceptualize of a cause prior to mind, what we are going to be conceptualizing as prior to mind is going to contain mind. The object that is prior, that causes mind, actually is fundamentally a construction of mind. So how could it be prior? How could it have caused mind to exist when its existence has been caused by mind? So as you can see, there can never be a law like generalization placed upon human thought and behavior. The second point of unpredictability for McIntyre is our inability to predict our future thoughts and behaviours. We can never know what we will think next. Because if we did know what we were thinking next, then we would have thought it now. What we think next is temporally absent within our mind. I cannot know what I will think next because if I did know what I would think next, then I would not think that, I would think something else. I can never know what is going to occur next in my own mind. The last point of unpredictability for McIntyre is what's called contingency, in which we just do not know how an individual will react to certain unforeseen or unforeseeable events. So if there's something which happens to an individual that could not have been predicted, the theory of prediction could not have included this. But if a theory cannot predict human action, how can determinism be true? Determinism, as Alex said, is a positive claim, in which it argues that human action is predictable, can be understood, and is epistemologically possible to be predicted. But what these unpredictabilities have shown is that these are logically impossible to be predicted, that these can never be predicted. Alastair McIntyre says, We have then four independent but often related sources of systemic unpredictability in human life. It is important to emphasise that not only does unpredictability not entail inexplicability, but that its presence is incompatible with the truth of determinism in a strong version. If that is the case, determinism cannot be true, because no law-like generalisation could ever develop to predict human behaviour. There will never be a theory of human behaviour and action, in which case 
it can never be true. It can never be shown to be true. There we have it. Determinism is a theory which relies upon a contradiction. A contradiction in which supposes that a mind could construct an object which could come before it. So, determinism is debunked. And so we now have what is known as the problem of indeterminism. So what we've learned here is that nothing can cause mind, nothing can come prior to mind, that everything in which we think is a prior cause to mind is actually construction of mind. Well, that's great, determinism's untrue. We must have free will then. No. <laughs> so as Alex pointed out, that just because our minds haven't been determined doesn't make us free. What? I'm Frank Pastore for Prager University. Now, when you introspect, when you think about your thinking, do you believe that you're the active agent in charge of the process or that you're just a passive recipient of the instruction? That you have no choice in the matter. It's all external forces, be they environmental, genetic, chemical, biological, or neurological. In other words, do you think all your thoughts have external causes beyond your control? Or do you think that you control some, if not most, of your thoughts? Now let's stay with our lunch example for a second. Back to the question. I ask you, where do you want to go for lunch today? Now, if all you are is a brain, an exhaustively physical system of neurons and synapses, then there's no you that's going to be making a choice at all. Your thought processes are basically just a complex series of colliding electron dominoes crashing into one another. It's just physical cause and effect, right? Something that can be exhaustively understood in terms of physics and chemistry. There's no you that's an agent that's deliberating or choosing or exercising free will. And that's why if you are just a brain, you cannot have free will. You would just be a physical machine, a very complex but programmed computer. But if you're something more than your brain, if you're the thing that has the brain, then when I ask you, where do you want to go for lunch? You're going to start deliberating. You're going to be weighing your taste preferences, the commute time, perhaps even counting calories. You'd be weighing various reasons to choose one place over another. You wouldn't be caused to think about any of these things. You would choose to think about these things, and you could stop anytime you wanted to. So what we have here, therefore, are two different types of things, an immaterial mind and the material brain. You are the thing that has the brain. You are not your brain. Surgeons can have access to my brain, but only I have access to my mind. This is what makes you human and not a machine. Psychology, the study of the mind, is not reducible to physics and biology and chemistry. Yet, there are many materialists, people who believe that physical matter is all that exists, that the only reality, including every thought, every feeling, every mind, every will, all of this is totally explained in terms of matter in motion, simply physical phenomena. These materialists believe that we're no more than robots and that free will is an illusion, myth. Now, why do they believe this? Because they understand that the moment they acknowledge that free will exists, that there really is an immaterial you beyond the physical realm, that there really is a mind, not just a brain, then there has to be something non-physical that accounts for our non-physical minds. Now, when you exercise your free will, 
and you choose to think about all of this, Hmm. you're gonna probably reason just like I did, that there's a great mind that accounts for the origin of your mind. But again, that's your choice. It's evidence of your free will. Join Prager University. Click here to subscribe to our YouTube channel. (laughs) Thinking out my opinions on free will and predetermination in this episode of Roxy Talks, stay tuned. What is up, my fellow dreamers and soul searchers? Where we discuss confidence, mindset, manifestation, and more. I'm here to help you banish your negative thinking and limiting beliefs so you can bring love, clarity, and joy into your life. So fun with manifesting. What an exciting concept, right? Like, let's use this thing not just to like get a relationship or to make some money or whatever, but to actually, I don't know, enjoy every day of our lives and make things fun, make things a game, take the severity out of things and figure out how we can use this whole manifesting thing to our advantage. We don't really know what's going on. Energy passes through this realm and our stream of consciousness kind of exists from the moment we're born to the moment we die. So it feels like we are experiencing this passage of time. I like this quote that Aaron Abke says, the big bang is still banging. This thing is still happening. What we are experiencing right now is an aftershock of the big bang. The very moment that you are experiencing right now has been set in motion since the big bang and probably before that, but we don't know what came before that, right? We don't even know, whatever. My point is, think about everything that's led you to where you are in your life or go backwards. Eh, just trace everything back. It's like it started with you being born, right? Which started with your conception, which started with your parents' relationship and your each individual parent's entire lives up until that point and their births, if you really wanna go back. So if you really think about it, if you start going back, everything that you are doing right in this moment has been in motion for eons, eternity, I don't know. So does that mean this is predetermined? Does that mean that where I'm sitting right now is absolutely inevitable? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't really want to subscribe. I mean, okay, let's 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 go down this road. If that's the case, then, I mean, cool. I'm cool with that, you know? Like, uh, I'm cool with where I'm at. Every idea I've ever had has been fed to me, then I guess every realization I've ever had, every new conclusion I've ever made, every ascension I've ever taken, every realization I've ever made as far as language and manifestation and things like that has been already set on my path. And here I am just living that out. All right, I mean, okay. Where's the fun in that? Like, as a creator, as like, let's think about like God or the creator or whatever, where, literally, where's the fun in that? What, what do I get out of creating a life and then determining everything it has to do and then just like watching it do the thing that I already said it had to do? I mean, self-experiencing life, which is itself because we are all the same thing. And so it's itself experiencing itself, learning it about itself. All that stuff in there, right? Because we are energy within energy, experiencing energy. At the, it's all weird, right? It's, it's a bunch of weird nonsense. It's a bunch of nonsense. But if we can find the patterns, see what's happening, and then adapt it to our own lives, we can peek behind the curtain. So if, like the law of one says, the whole point of us here is to learn, grow, experience, repeat, then free will is imperative. And the law of one says that it is imperative that we do have free will and that we are not given any sort of inclination as to why we are here, what we're doing here, what what the hell this whole thing is. In fact, that's the whole point. That's the whole reason we don't have any memory of our past lives or where we came from or where we're going or who we actually 
actually come from. The whole point of it is to not know that stuff and then deal with life. If you know you're an infinite creator and that nothing really matters and that this life is just like a dream and as soon as you die it's like waking up from a dream or walking out of a movie, it just kind of fades and... and better. There's not going to be this learning, this arc of growth if you already know the end game, the end goal. So it's imperative that we do have free will and we are able to choose because we need to make these decisions untainted for a true lesson to be had. Again, if we know the answers to the test, are we going to study? No. I mean, some people might, but most people are not going to study if they know the answers to the test. So that's why it's important that we don't know what's going on here in order for us to truly have the human experience. So if that's the case, then things are not predetermined and you don't have to live out any sort of life that you don't want to. What you're born into is not your destiny unless you decide it is, unless you keep it that way. It becomes your destiny when you think that there's nothing else available to you. Then it is, right? And that's that's stuff because you don't have to do that. There's no rule that says that what you start with is what you end with. In fact, the whole point of it is to do the opposite. The whole point of it is to see that that is not an indicator of where you have to end up. It's just your starting point and that's it. Damn it, we've seen all this crap before. Yeah, this sucks. Do those butt wipes actually think we're going to sit here and watch the same crap over and over again? Shazam, shazam, shazam. <laughs> <laughs> an issue that must have occurred to everyone who spent some time thinking about physics, which is that the idea of free will is both incompatible with the laws of nature and entirely meaningless. I know that a lot of people just do not want to believe this, but I think you are here to hear what the science says. So I will tell you what the science says. I want to say ahead that there is much discussion about free will in neurology, where the question is whether we subconsciously make decisions before we become consciously aware of having made one. I am not a neurologist, so this is not what I'm concerned with here. I will be talking about free will as the idea that in this present moment there are several futures which are possible and your free will plays a role for selecting which one of those possible futures becomes reality. This, I think, is how most of us intuitively think of free will because it agrees with our experience of how the world seems to work. It is not how some philosophers have defined free will and I will get to this later. But first, let me tell you what's wrong with this intuitive idea that we can somehow select among possible futures. Last week, I explained what differential equations are and that all laws of nature, which we currently know, work with those differential equations. These laws have the common property that if you have an initial condition at one moment in time, for example, the exact details of the particles in your brain and all your brain's inputs, then you can calculate what happens at any other moment in time from those initial conditions. This means in a nutshell that the whole story of the universe and every single detail was determined already at the Big Bang. We're just watching it play out. These deterministic laws of nature apply to you and your brain because you are made of particles. And what happens with you is a consequence of what happens 
happens with those particles. A lot of people seem to think this is a philosophical position. They call it materialism or reductionism and think that giving it a name that ends on ism is an excuse to not believe it. Well, of course, you can insist to just not believe reductionism is correct, but this is denying scientific evidence. We do not guess we know that brains are made of particles and we do not guess we know that we can derive from the laws for the constituents what the whole object does. If you make a claim to the contrary, you are contradicting well-established science. I can't prevent you from denying scientific evidence, but I can tell you that this way you will never understand how the universe really works. So the trouble with free will is that according to the laws of nature that we know describe humans on the fundamental level, the future is determined by the present that the system, in this case your brain, might be partly chaotic does not make a difference for this conclusion because chaos is still deterministic. Chaos makes predictions difficult, but the future still follows from the initial condition. What about quantum mechanics? In quantum mechanics, some events are truly random and cannot be predicted. Does this mean that quantum mechanics is where you can find free will? Sorry, but no, this makes no sense. These random events in quantum mechanics are not influenced by you regardless of exactly what you mean by you because they are not influenced by anything. That's the whole point of saying they are fundamentally random. Nothing determines their outcome. There's no will in this, not yours and not anybody else's. Taken together, we therefore have determinism with the occasional random quantum jump. And no combination of these two types of laws allows for anything resembling this intuitive idea that we can somehow choose which possible future becomes real. The reason this idea of free will turns out to be incompatible with the laws of nature is that it never made sense in the first place. You see, that thing you call free will should in some sense allow you to choose what you want. But then it's either determined by what you want, in which case it's not free, or it's not determined, in which case it's not a will. Now, some have tried to define free will by the ability to have done otherwise, but that's just empty words. If you did one thing, there's no evidence you could have done something else because, well, you didn't. Really, there is always only your fantasy of having done otherwise. In summary, the idea that we have a free will which gives us the possibility to select among different futures is both incompatible with the laws of nature and logically incoherent. I should add here that it's not like I'm saying something new. Look at the writing of any philosopher who understands physics and they will acknowledge this. But some philosophers insist they want to have something they can call free will and have therefore tried to redefine it. For example, you may speak of free will if no one was in practice able to predict what you would do. This is certainly presently the case that most human behavior is unpredictable, though I can predict that some people who did not actually watch this video will leave a comment saying they had no other choice than leaving their comment and think they are terribly original. So yeah, if you want, you can redefine free will to mean no one was able to predict your decision. But of course, your decision was still determined or random. 
regardless of whether someone predicted it. Others have tried to argue that free will means some of your decisions are dominated by processes internal to your brain and not by external influences. But of course, your decision was still determined or random regardless of whether it was dominated by external or internal influences. I find it silly to speak of free will in these cases. I also find it unenlightening to have an argument about the use of words. If you want to define free will in such a way that it is still consistent with the laws of nature, that is fine by me, though I will continue to complain that's just verbal acrobatics. In any case, regardless of how you want to define the word, we still cannot select among several possible futures. This idea makes absolutely no sense if you know anything about physics. What is really going on if you are making a decision is that your brain is running a calculation and while it is doing that, you do not know what the outcome of the calculation will be. Because if you did, you wouldn't have to do the calculation. So the impression of free will comes from our self-awareness that we think about what to do, combined with our inability to predict the result of what we are thinking before we are done. I feel like I must add here a word about the claim that human behavior is unpredictable because if someone told you that they predicted you'd do one thing, you could decide to do something Else. This is the rubbish argument because it has nothing to do with human behavior. It comes from interfering with the system you are making predictions for. It is easy to see that this argument is nonsense because you can make the same claim about very simple computer codes. Suppose you have a computer that evaluates whether an equation has a real valued root. The answer is yes or no. You can predict the answer, but now you can change the algorithm so that if you input the correct answer, the code will output the exact opposite answer. So yes if you predicted no and no if you predicted yes. As a consequence, your prediction will never be correct. Clearly, this has nothing to do with free will, but with the fact that the system you make a prediction for gets input which the prediction didn't account for. There's nothing interesting going on in this argument. Another objection that I've heard is that I should not say free will does not exist because that would erode people's moral behavior. The concern is, you see, that if people knew free will does not exist, then they would think it does not matter what they do. This is of course nonsense. If you act in ways that harm other people, then these other people will take steps to prevent that from happening again. This has nothing to do with free will. We are all just running software that is trying to optimize our well-being. If you caused harm, you are responsible not because you had free will, but because you embody the problem and locking you up will solve it. There have been a few research studies that supposedly showed a relation between priming participants to not believe in free will and them behaving immorally. The problem with these studies, if you look at how they were set up, is that people were not primed to not believe in free will. They were primed to think fatalistically. In some cases, for example, they were being suggested that their genes determine their future, which, needless to say, is only partly correct regardless of whether you believe in free will. And some more nuanced recent studies have actually shown the opposite. A 2017 study on free will and moral behavior concluded, we observed that disbelief in free will had a positive impact on the morality of decisions towards others. I think is that people find it difficult to think of themselves in any other way than making decisions drawing on this non-existent free will. So what can you do? 
you don't need to do anything. Just because free will is an illusion does not mean you're not allowed to use it as a thinking aid. If you lived a happy life so far using your imagined free will, by all means, please keep on doing so. If it causes you cognitive dissonance to acknowledge your belief in something that doesn't exist, I suggest that you think of your life as a story which has not yet been told. You are equipped with a thinking apparatus that you use to collect information and act on what you have learned from this. The result of that thinking is determined, but you still have to do the thinking. That's your task. That's why you are here. I am curious to see what will come out of your thinking and you should be curious about it too. Why am I telling you this? Because I think that people who do not understand that free will is an illusion underestimate how much their decisions are influenced by the information they are exposed to. After watching this video, I hope some of you will realize that to make the best of your thinking apparatus, you need to understand how it works and pay more attention to cognitive biases and logical fallacies. Exactly on how it is that you're walking, it's even hard to walk. So there are certain places in the brain that if you stimulate there, a person begins to laugh. You ask them, wait, why are you laughing? And they say, oh, I just remember this really funny joke. The brain kind of puts together some reasons for something that you did. While we think that they're under full conscious control, they are not. There is a famous experiment made in the early 80s by Benjamin Libet. The idea is that a person is holding their hand and they're told whenever they have the urge to do so, you flex whenever you want. However, at the same time, there is this rotating dot on the screen. And your job is to look at the screen and say where the dot was when you first had the urge to move. So then you have this weird situation. Only 200 milliseconds before you move, do people say, I'm aware that I've decided to move. But if you look into their brain, you can see something there a second before they move. So what happens in that interval? Some kind of nefarious neuroscientist that would put an electrode on you would say, aha, you're about to move now, but you would not be conscious of it. And some people interpret it in the limit experiment to suggest that all of these big important life decisions are maybe unconscious. Free will is the ability to have acted differently. What I mean by this is that if we were to wind back the clock in any situation, it was completely within the realm of possibility for you to have acted differently to the way that you actually did. The idea is that you are in control of your actions and any decisions that you make are determined only by your own conscious self. But the thing is, there are so many things wrong with this that it's difficult to know where to start. Begin by considering what would have to be true in order for us to truly have total free will, to be able to have acted differently. Well, firstly, we would need to be aware of everything that is influencing our actions, including environmental factors, our precise mood, uh, the influence of other people, the influence of past experiences, and more. Secondly, we would need to be in complete control of every one of them. Neither of these are true or even possible. Now, you might concede this, but not think it a problem. Okay, you say, so I can't control all of the factors that led me to like the taste of ice cream, but on a more mundane level, I'm still in complete control over whether I choose chocolate or vanilla. Not so fast. Again, consider this most simple of choices, chocolate or vanilla. Or if it's easier, consider the last mundane choice that you had to make. Walk or drive this morning, go out or stay in tonight. Think about why you chose one or would choose one over the other. So what would make me choose vanilla over chocolate? 
Well, there is only one possible answer, which I'll elaborate on shortly. I would need to want it more than chocolate. In order to choose vanilla, I'd need to want vanilla. But is this something I can control? Can I control what it is that I want? Not a chance. Consider the fact that you, presumably, don't want to punch your mother in the face. Can you choose to want to do that? This isn't the same thing as choosing to do it. Could you choose to want to? No, no more than I could choose to want vanilla over chocolate. I just want chocolate more than vanilla. That's just a fact about myself that I can't change. But okay, let's go further, you say. Of course, I can't choose to want vanilla over chocolate when I really want chocolate, but what if I just decided, in the full knowledge that I would prefer chocolate, to go for vanilla anyway, just for the sake of regaining my free will and nothing else? Well, I'm afraid you'd still face the same problem. The exact same problem, in fact. In order to do that, you'd need to want to regain your free will as you see it. Why is your desire to prove a point like this stronger than the desire to have the ice cream you prefer. It just is. And if it happened not to be, you'd have chosen the ice cream that you do prefer. The key takeaway is this. You cannot determine your wants. Think of something you want. Try to not want it. Think of something you don't want and try to want it. It's not possible. And even if it were, in order to change a don't want into a want, you'd need to want to want it. And vice versa, to change a want into a don't want, you'd need to want to not want it. You simply can't control what you want. Now, that's one piece of the puzzle, and it may seem odd to leave it there, but just wait until we put them together. Okay, the next piece of the puzzle is to convince you of this fact, that there are only two reasons, two reasons, none more in any circumstances, for which you will ever do anything. In fact, it's impossible for you to ever do anything for any reason other than one of these two. And those two reasons are because you want to, or because you're forced to. And this is fundamentally important and worth really understanding and thinking about. You will only ever do anything in your entire life because you either want to or are forced to. That's it, no exceptions. And because of the fact that nobody seems to believe me on this point at first, I'll give you a common objection that I hear all the time. In fact, I recently spoke to ex-NFL player Arian Foster about free will on his podcast, and he, playing devil's advocate, brought up the following. Consider exercise, consider going to the gym, most people don't want to go to the gym, but they do it anyway. Surely this is an example of someone doing something freely and not because they want to or because they're forced to. Not really, because there has to be a reason for going to the gym. And for most people, and for Arian, it's something like to stay healthy, to stay in shape, to live longer, whatever it may be. So we have to ask again the same fundamental question. Why is the desire to stay healthy stronger than the desire to go to the gym? It just is. Or maybe it isn't, and some people stay at home and eat junk food instead. For these people, why is the desire to sit around or to eat junk food stronger than the desire to be healthy? It just is. Again, remember, you can't control the strengths or objects of your desires. It's they that control you. And if that doesn't unease you, repeat those words again to yourself until it does. So even when you don't want to do something, but you do it anyway, this is only ever because of a stronger and equally uncontrollable desire to do something that requires you to do it. In other words, all of your actions really are controlled by your wants. And I really mean this. This is what really convinced me of the non-existence of free will. If you aren't convinced that everything you do is either because you want to or because you're forced to, please pause the video and just really think about this. I promise that any example you can think of has a hidden want lying behind it. So now, as promised, let's start putting this together. There are two reasons you will ever do anything, because you want to or because you're forced to. 
Of course, if you're forced to do something, then you're definitely not acting freely, and nobody would deny that. So that just leaves your wants. But, well, we've already concluded that you can't control your wants, so actions motivated by wants aren't really free either. So being forced to do something isn't free will, and wanting to do something isn't free will. But being forced or wanting to do something are the only reasons why you do anything. Hence, free will is conclusively an illusion. Newtonian determinism says that the universe is a clock, a gigantic clock that's wound up at the beginning of time, and it's been ticking ever since according to Newton's laws of motion. So, what you're going to eat 10 years from now, on January 1st, has already been fixed. It's already known using Newton's laws of motion. Einstein believed in that. Einstein was a determinist. My thesis is that quantum mechanics corroborates non-duality. Quantum mechanics conclusively debunks materialism and the notion of there being an objective reality or physicality. The only way to really understand the full consequences of quantum mechanics is to transcend the human mind. When you're not looking at your child, that child exists as infinity, as nothingness. When you're not looking at an elephant, it's infinity, it's nothingness. When you're not looking at your house, it's infinity, it's nothingness. That's what it is. I think science, again, in deference to Sam Harris, he said, don't go the way of quantum physics. I think I'm going to have to say that science is now in a process of overthrowing the climactic overthrow of the superstition of materialism. <laughs> that everything that we call matter comes from something that is not material. <laughs> that the essential nature of the physical world is that it's not physical. That the essential stuff of the universe is not stuff. Call it what you will. And science also tells us that nature is a discontinuity, that it's an on-off phenomenon, that there are gaps between every two ons, where you find a field of possibilities, a field of pure potentiality. Science doesn't call it God, but what is God if not the immeasurable potential of all that was, all that is, and all that will be? Science also tells us that this is a field of non-locality, where everything is correlated with everything else. My, your science is really frozen in the dungeons of conservatism and in the dungeons of orthodoxy. Today, science tells us that uh, the essential nature of reality is non-local correlation. Everything is connected to everything else. That there's hidden creativity. There are quantum leaps of creativity. That there's something called the observer effect where intention orchestrates space-time events, which we then measure as movement and motion and energy uh. and matter. <laughs> thing I want to say okay. is like it's not that we believe something ridiculous and you don't you're, you don't believe it. We're gullible. We're gullible. We we believe some weird shit about the flat earth. We believe some weird shit. You don't believe it. You're smart. It's not about that. It's about we actually don't know what we're on. We always say that we don't know. But based on all the shit that we got by the mainstream, we don't believe that. Here's what you I believe that. I so it's not that we believe something crazy, <laughs> and 
you don't because you smell it. The bullshit. Isn't there a scientific, like isn't there a scientific tradition? We look at it totally different. We look at it as you believe you, you use this, all this shit from NASA. Hold on. And we don't believe any of that shit. Yeah, but you use that. You use that microphone you use a cell phone, right? It's science. Hold on. I would, the crisis of democracy that they're concerned with in all of the democratic societies. Well, something that's really woo-woo, like, you know, what in the bleep do we know? Um, mm. I mean, you see where it would come from, right? Because quantum mechanics says what the world is is different than what we see when we look at it. So it's a small leap from that correct statement to we bring the world into existence by looking at it, right? right. And then you're Deepak Chopra. And Deepak, uh. is, he's found me on Twitter, so whenever I tweet something about quantum mechanics, he you know retweets it with something, but it's all in your mind, it's all consciousness bringing the world into existence. He loves word salad. In yeah. that, that guy is the sort of genre of people that are trying to improve their life or be spiritual, or they love that Deepak Chopra. Or shit. Like yeah. I've had, the, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who's like, uh, he, he gave me a Deepak Chopra book, and uh, I started going through it, and I was like, I go, you know, this guy's crazy, right? Like, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. he probably wants to do well. Like, he's probably not a terrible person. He probably wants to do well, but he's also ignoring the actual scientists that study all this stuff. A great word for it. He calls them deepities. When you <laughs> string some words together in a way that sounds extremely profound, but you look closely at it and doesn't actually mean anything at all. You know, there's a website that'll do that for you. Oh, the Deepak Chopra quote generator. Yes, yes that's right. It's not, it's not that hard. <laughs> the reason why Deepak can do that is because most people don't understand what he's talking about. So if you say a lot of stuff about things that people don't understand, kind of recognize that pattern in the woo-woo people. I'm like, oh, I kind of see what you're doing. You're throwing a bunch of very complicated words that aren't in most people's vernacular, and you're saying them in a way that makes me feel like you have some sort of a connection to the, the chi and to the chakras and to the, the inner whatever that that everybody's trying to reach to be happy. Yeah, and another problem is just that whenever there is a field, whether it's physics or medicine or whatever, where we know something, but it's hard, complicated, counterintuitive, when we explain it, we translate it, right? You know, in physics, we have mathematical equations that are quite unambiguous as to what they say, but then we use words. We say, well, there's a cloud, there's a probability, etc. And every translation is inaccurate in some sense. So if you're basing your beliefs off the translations, then you can fudge them a little bit more to get almost wherever you want to go. There's two things you can do when you are faced with fundamental puzzles of reality. One is you can face up to what the world is trying to tell you, and you can accept it and take it as what it is, no matter what you like. The other is you can choose to tell a flattering story about yourself. So the uh, idealistic interpretation that was the dominant quantum interpretation from the Copenhagen School leads to absurdities and dead ends. But its dominance is a result of the dominance of the Marxist and positivist theory of science in European universities, in physics departments, at the time the people who became the leaders of quantum theory were doing their original undergraduate training. The actual um, development of this Bohm theory was strongly influenced by Einstein, who had been very critical of the elements of subjectivism that he saw in the Copenhagen interpretation. In the 
start of the 1950s, Bohm had written a standard textbook, uh, which was entirely within the framework of the Copenhagen interpretation. Einstein read it and asked Bohm to come and discuss it with him. And over a series of conversations, he persuaded Bohm that this in idealist interpretation was wrong. He taught me out of it. I'm back where I was before I wrote the book, said uh, Bohm after meeting Einstein. A year later, around the time he was sacked from Princeton and ex exiled to Brazil for being a suspected communist, he came up with a set of papers that built a new theory of mechanics, an extension of the de Broglie theory. It's not clear how much he knew of de Broglie in 1952 and how much it was an independent invention or how much it was just a recapitulation of de Broglie. So, in conclusion, what I'm saying is that the apparent quantum challenge to materialism was just a dressing up of pre-given Marxist prejudices, which the physicists who first developed the um, quantum theory had been inculcated with during their training. The same prejudices that initially caused physicists in Germany to reject Boltzmann's atomic theory. The rejection of Bohm's theory was not due to science, but among other reasons, the fellow physicists like Oppenheimer at Princeton said they weren't interested in, in Bohm's theory because he, by that stage he was regarded as a Marxist, a fellow traveler, traitor to the USA. In addition, of course, you have the fact that established professors would find it very hard to accept the paradigm shift. If they had been lecturing for 20 years on the Copenhagen interpretation, they were not going to enjoy someone coming up and saying, well, some of your basic assumptions are wrong. is on. Okay. Welcome everyone, welcome to the MTT podcast and tonight we're discussing uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Uh, we have with us uh, Jean Bricmont, uh, who I will allow himself to introduce himself and we also have P with us, uh, who is a, a grad student in physics or in quantum physics I should say. Um, but welcome Jean and welcome P, thank you guys for joining us. Hello, thank you for having you. Great, great. Uh, so, John, yes, could you please give us a bit of a description about uh, your background, your work in quantum mechanics? Oh, I've mostly been working on statistical physics and mathematical physics as a, as a researcher. I was a professor and researcher at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Uh, but I always was very interested in questions mm -hmm. about foundations of quantum mechanics. So I wrote two books. One is more technical, it's called Making Sense of Quantum Mechanics. And another one is more popular and in principle accessible to everybody. It's called uh, uh, Quantum Sense and Nonsense. And it in emphasizes the nonsense that people are saying about quantum mechanics. That's my okay. My con well, I've written articles too, but anyway. Okay, that's, that's great. That's great, John. So um, 
I guess, uh, if you could, in a short sort of sense, what is quantum mechanics in, in, in a short blurb? Yeah, a, a brief okay. description. Well, it's usually presented as the theory of atoms, electrons, elementary particles such as neutrons and protons and all other elementary particles and also of light. That's usually the way it's presented. But the problem is that if you wish, if you believe in reductionism, then it's, of course, a theory of everything. But everything is made of atoms, and so it applies to uh, the entire universe. If you wish, it's like, uh, let's say, before there was classical mechanics and people thought it applies to everything, then people realized that there were electromagnetic phenomena like electricity and so on, and magnetism. So the laws of that were given by Maxwell in the 19th century, and then people decided that this is the theory of everything. Then it was modified, especially in general relativity. And, uh, but that was then a coherent worldview, if you wish, the classical world, which was then more or less valid at the end of the 1910s. And uh, it was shaken in the 1920s by the advance of quantum mechanics. And now the theory of everything, if you wish, is presumably quantum mechanics. At least that's the way people think about it. So <clears throat> it's, it's an important... I mean, but of course... Many things behave classically. If you take objects which are big, then in practice you can use classical mechanics. A big could be anything a little bigger than atoms or molecules. But, for example, quantum mechanics also applies to stars, it applies to the, to the reaction in the solar system, it applies to the nuclear reaction, etc. So it does apply to many objects under many ordinary circumstances. To speak of table and chairs and uh, cars and bicycles and so on, you can use classical So yes, I think I think I got uh, most of that there. So um, I guess an important point that you just brought up there. So it, there seems to be a distinction between classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. So when was yes. the big break between that? When did we move from classical to quantum? Well, people realized that there were problems with the classical worldview already at the end of the 19th century. There was something which I can't explain really, which has to do with specific heat of solids. I mean, specific heat is the way. Uh, the temperature changes when you add heat to a system. And um, there was, uh, so there were problems. They were not fitting with classical predictions. And then there were uh, problems with the spectra of atoms. They, they radiate and the radiation didn't fit classical mechanics. And so they adopt models due to Einstein, Debye, Bohr, etc. in the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, sorry. And uh, these models were able to reproduce the data, but there was no understanding. And the understanding came with the work of Heisenberg, Schrödinger, Pauli, uh, uh, others, Jordan, born in, in the 1920s. Mostly it started with Heisenberg, who really developed the mathematical, mathematical theory that was then given, giving uh, the, the correct prediction, but not in an ad hoc way, but from some fundamental rules. And people have been wondering what these rules are ever since, because reason that we'll get into there were problems with those rules hmm. okay i see i see well i mean maybe we should get into that straight away because because obviously that's that's what we're trying to get to the essence of is, is i suppose the progression of, of quantum mechanics so yeah. as you said uh, something that at the end of the 19th century we started realizing there's something wrong and certain rules were being broken so just to clarify um obviously this is the realm of physics um uh, Newtonian physics, when you said the breaking of rules, were those the breaking of Newtonian laws of physics? In a sense, yes, yeah, they were statistical. I mean, it involved my other book, namely statistical physics, but they were uh, statistical physics was used, uh, they were using statistical 
reasoning at the end of the 19th century with the work of Maxwell, Boltzmann, and then Gibbs, in order to deduce uh, how bodies made of a large number of atoms were behaving. And that was, of course, and, and those, I mean, that was based on classical mechanics, if you wish, but they were going further because they were statistical reasonings. And then, of course, the problem is that those predictions were counter to classical prediction. And then also, also the radiation of atoms was in contradiction with classical electromagnetism. So the whole classical worldview was contradicted. Mm. We didn't know why. And quantum mechanics mm. gave a theory, in principle, gave a theory mm. explaining why. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you mentioned some names, Heisenberg, uh, I think perhaps Schrodinger. Um, and I understand, of course, people might be familiar with, with short Pardon? And the Breuil also, yeah, I should mention. So, so I, I, I think many people are familiar with the Schrodinger's cat, um, I guess, phrase yeah. or metaphor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that still uh, a dominant idea within uh, well, the well, the problem is that everybody is familiar with it, but people misunderstand what it means. Uh, the, Schrodinger, the Schrodinger, first of all, Schrodinger wrote in 1935 an article called The Present Situation Quantum Mechanics. And there he has a paragraph about the cat. And uh, he calls it, in English it's translated as quite ridiculous, but it was written in German. In German they used the word burlesque. I'm not sure why they didn't use burlesque in English. But anyway, I mean, he certainly didn't think the cat, there was a cat that was both dead and alive. He certainly never thought that. It was, right. for him, it was a reduction absurdum of the standard dogma which says that th- things can be in two states at the same time. And then they say that for atoms or electrons, and then we, we are not sure what it means. And, you know, there's a famous example, which is called the double slit experiment, where you have a, a screen with two slits in them, and you send quantum particles, with, well, photons or electrons. And, and then, of course, you can detect, if you want, you can detect which slit the particle goes through. But if you don't detect them and you have these two slits, then you get an interference pattern if you detect the particle on another slit further away from the first slit. Mm. If you have only one hole which is open, then you get a sort of, you know, a sort of Gaussian distribution, a sort of random distribution of heat on the second slit, which is what you would expect. And the same thing is you open, uh, if you close the, the slit which was open and open the other one. But when both are open, instead of having a superposition of the result when each slit is open, you get interference effect, which means there are some places where there are fewer particles landing than if one of the slits was open. So that's mm-hmm. what the people call a mystery. And then they say, well, that's because the particle goes through both slits at once, and then it behaves as a wave. But if you mm-hmm. look where it goes, then it behaves as a particle. And that's what is called a superposition. It's both, a super, it's quantum description is that it's described by a wave going through one slit and a wave going through the other. And then Schrodinger, that is a bit complicated to explain, but then he said, well, if that's the case, then you could also have a cat whose quantum state, quantum state, not the real state, mm. but quantum state, would be that it's both alive and dead. And that mm. comes, that's the paradox. And of course, Schrodinger thought it makes sense. What Schrodinger thought and what Einstein thought is simply that quantum mechanics is not complete, meaning that the quantum state, which is a pure mathematical object, is a function. If people know what a function is, it's a function. Okay, mm-hmm. but it's a function of what? It's not clear what the function means. The function, that, it's called the wave function. That wave, that, uh, wave function 
can be uh, considered as uh, you know as um, things uh, okay. that function uh, it's not I mean the you know the the meaning of the function is unclear but it can be used I won't explain how but mathematically it can be used in order to predict very accurately results of experiments done in laboratory. If you do some measurements, that is called, I have called them experiments in laboratories, then you can predict what the outcomes are, even though the predictions are random. So you can't really predict deterministically what will happen, but you can, uh, you know, you can uh, predict the sort of statistical distribution of uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what it's like. Just and, then, and, then, and then, of course, the, the problem with the, the cat is that it's sort of obvious that the cat is either alive or dead. And so the description of quantum mechanics, which just says it's a superposition of both, is not complete. And Schrodinger thought it wasn't complete for electrons or atoms or, or everything else. And Einstein said that too. And what is more remarkable is at the same time that quantum mechanics was introduced, De Bruyne, even before ordinary quantum mechanics was introduced, De Bruyne proposed a position, uh, theory in which ordinary quantum mechanics, the quantum wave function, etc., is not complete. It's not a complete description. There's mm. more to it. There's the, I can explain later what more sure. there is, but particles have properties beyond their wave function. And then, and then, of course, in that theory, the cat is always either alive or dead. It's not a superposition. You know, and, and Schrodinger and Einstein would have been happy with mm. this theory. Mm. Actually, so that, yeah, let's let's go into that in a moment. So, just to clarify, the, the the double slit experiment is a real experiment. That itself is not a metaphor. That is that was a real observed. Yeah, that's a real uh, experiment. Yes, that's a real experiment. Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, so, if you if you do, we'll go into. You already brought up. Um, uh, sorry, I'm not familiar with the pronunciation of his name. Is it De, de Bruyne? Yeah, it's in French. It's called De Bruyne. Yes, but it's written De, de Bruyne. It's written. B A D then it's B R O G L I E, so it's a strange name, but it's okay. Okay, so so now De Bruyne is, is obviously the the theorist that then makes a breakthrough in your opinion in terms of uh, if if we consider the Schrödinger there were many, many many breakthroughs because Bohr's at Bohr's and Einstein and the by pre quantum theories were breakthroughs and then the break breakthrough, breakthrough from the point of view of ordinary was due to Heisenberg in Hegoland. He was in an island in uh, in an island of the coast of Denmark because he had hay fever and he escaped there. And then uh, he, during the night, he, he found he found the formalism of quantum mechanics. And then it was developed by what the people call the three men, the work of the three men, the Reimannerarbeit, uh, Heisenberg, uh, Born, and Jordan. And, and then the formalism was developed further. But there okay. were many, there were many, you can't say one breakthrough, but, but, but the, point, the point that De Bruyne was sort of the lone, you know, the lone man there, but he, he had an idea mm -hmm. that would present the theory as complete. I see, I see. I can explain very, very easily what it is. You see, quantum mechanics only concerns itself with predicting results of measurement in laboratories. But then you can say, okay, but that's supposed to be a fundamental physical theory of the whole universe. So what's going on outside of laboratories? What happened before there were laboratories? Laboratories is a recent invention. 
and what happened before they were humans or what happened before they were, you know, living beings or whatever. And what about other galaxies? I mean, it sort of doesn't make any sense to say that it's a theory that relates only to observation. And that's where we get into this issue of idealism and so on. But on the face of it, it doesn't make any sense. And then, and that's why Schrodinger and Einstein didn't think it was complete. And in the Boyle's theory, it's very simple. There is this wave function, which is a function, and it has a, it sort of guides the particle. The particles actually exist, their position, they move, their velocities, per, per, per consequence, and they move, but they are guided by the wave. So you can think of a, of a wave like a water wave, and think of a little boat on the water wave, okay? It's being driven by the, by the wave. Now, if the wave has the two-slit experiment, you could think of the boat going through only one slit, a very small boat, and then, of course, it's guided by the wave, but the wave will be different depending on the two slits being open or one slit being open, because if the two slits open, the wave can go through both slits and therefore interfere or affect the motion of the, of the boat beyond, behind the first slit, right? Mm-hmm. Is that image obvious or clear? No, 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 that makes sense. Yes, yes. And, and, but if you close the one, the other hole, the, with the one through which the, particle, the boat does not go, then the wave will be different behind the, the state that the, the particle went to and the, the motion will be different. And that's, that's it. The way it's guided is not exactly the same as the water wave, but that's an analogy. But mm-hmm. that picture gives you a very simple picture of what goes on in, uh, in uh, the Breuil bomb theory. I mean, okay, in the De Breuil theory of 1920. Actually, the Breuil wrote this article in 1923 and 1924. So. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. So just to clarify, obviously, is this in relation to also the uh, the impact of the observer on the actual? Um... Exactly, 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 and, and that's exactly that's exactly why Schrödinger introduces cat, because of course when it comes to these elementary particles, we don't know if they have position, and we don't know we we can't observe them directly. So you could say, well, maybe we don't know if they have position. How do we know these things? And these were the arguments that the people call the Copenhagen interpretation, and Copenhagen is due to the fact that the main defender of those views were Niels Bohr, and also Heisenberg, Pauli, Jordan, others, but mostly Bohr, and Bohr was Danish, and he lived and worked in Copenhagen. That's why it's called Mm -hmm. Copenhagen. Actually, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be patriotic, but it could be called the Brussels interpretation, because it actually was crystallized at the Brussels meeting, uh, Brussels-Solver meeting in 1927, which took place in the Hotel Metropole in Brussels, and uh, and that's where most of the discussion took place, and the proceedings of those things were uh, tra- are now translated into English, so you can read them in English. Mm-hmm. They, originally, they were in French, but um, um, the, so it's very it's quite interesting to read. But anyway, so the you see the the yeah the the observation comes from the fact that the meaning of the wave function, if you really strictly ask what does it mean, what does it mean for an electron to have a wave function, then the only honest answer that two physicists can give, and you can ask physicists, maybe they won't agree with me, but then they should tell me what the answer is, is that if you bring the electron in the laboratory and do such and such experiment with it, then there will be such and such result with such and such probabilities. That's what that's all it says. But it doesn't tell you anything about the poor electron being somewhere, having properties, having a velocity, an energy, whatever. None of these properties are, are there except in very special cases called eigenvectors. I say that for the experts. But the, mm. uh, 
uh, not to be bothered in the comments by the experts, but the, 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 you know, in general, things don't have properties except when they are measured. And then, of course, then you say, ha-ha, but what is a measurement, right? If a measurement means an interaction with a measuring device, then maybe you can explain how the measuring device works and what produces the result. But that's not what quantum mechanics does. The measuring device is a real deus ex machina. It enters the formalism by saying, okay, if you measure this or that, that quantity, that physical quantity, the energy, the velocity, whatever, then you get such and such result with such and such probability. That's all it says. It doesn't tell you how it works. Of course, we know how it works. We know how these measuring devices work. But the theory doesn't tell you why, starting from this superposed state where the particle goes to one slit and the other one, the cat is dead and alive, etc. When you have this superposed state, how do you get a definite state at the end of the experiment? Mm-hmm. I think that's called the collapse of the wave function. And that's actually a complete deus ex machina. I see. Okay. In ordinary quantum mechanics. And, and, and then Schrodinger say, okay, now your cat is both dead and alive. That doesn't make any sense. And the, the, the thing which is super irritating is that all kinds of people, and it's really in popular books, etc., people say, oh, but the cat is both and alive before we look. But that's not what Schrodinger meant, of course. That's not, he, he didn't believe that. By the way, the example right. of Schrodinger actually was anticipated by Einstein. Einstein's example was maybe less dramatic than the cat. It was, um, what do you call that, uh, powder keg, uh, baril de coupe, uh, uh, Dynamite keg? No, dynamite, if you wish. Uh, I mean, which was both exploded and not exploded. Right. Because you could do that with anything, okay? You could have that with a car that both runs and doesn't run. I mean, you can have, I mean, it's completely... You know, completely. It's just a metaphor, right? right. It's the story of Schrödinger is completely arbitrary. But the Schrödinger cat. I mean, Einstein just told that to Schrödinger in a letter, but but the idea of Schrödinger stuck. But it's only a paragraph. The article is quite long. It's only a paragraph, and the article contains very interesting ideas behind that. Schrödinger mm-hmm. just said, "Okay, it's absurd," and then it's become almost a dogma that quantum mechanics is that the cat is good and hell, but not at all what it says. And the, it can't even be interpreted like that if you stick to the formalism. What the formalism would say is that, indeed, if you look, if you measure the cat, then it's either, you will either find it dead, dead or alive. It then looks ridiculous because then it looks like, you know, if I throw a coin and put my hand on it and not look at the result, then I'm not going to say it's both head and tail or, you know, half dead and half tail. No, the probability that it's head and tail is one half, one half. But it's either one or the other, obviously. And if I look, mm-hmm. I learn which one it is. And that's exactly what Schrodinger meant with the cat. Mm-hmm. I just want to use, there's two other, um, uh, I suppose, short uh, metaphors or uh, examples. And I want, to, I want you to tell me if they relate to the same problem or if they are uh, different problems uh, or, or how they relate to quantum mechanics and our understanding or misunderstanding of, of quantum mechanics. So the first is um, uh, it was someone who tried to make a tweet and he said, understanding quantum mechanics in five words. Um, uh, yeah, that, that, yes. Loop, seen yeah. particle, not seen wave. Uh, and yeah, and the, the second one... It's really, it's babbit. It's, it's in my book. Yeah. It's look, particles, don't look waves. Yeah, I know. Look, particles, don't look waves. So is that the same problem as the Schrodinger cat exactly, exactly, exactly. Because when you look through which the whole the particle and the double seed experiment went, went through, through which it went, then you, you know that it went through a hole, one hole and not both. So it's a, it's a particle. If you don't look, then after, but, but you see, this is very irritating, these tweets, because of course, 
it, it's a way to summarize the dogma, but it's not very clear what it means. Because, for example, take the poor particle. It goes towards the first. So, so there are two. Remember, there are two worlds. Okay, one with the two slits and the world behind that record the, the, the position of the particle. And it's the statistics when you do the experiment many times. Statistics of the position of the particle on the second world that. Uh, you know, has this interfer interference effect, and then you say, well, it goes through both holes, etc., or it's a wave and not a particle. But when the particle goes through the towards the first world, how does it know whether the two slate will be open or not, or one slate or whatever? And and then what does it, how does it have to dress? It has to dress as a particle or as a wave? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, then we can, unless you can say, okay, but when we look, and that's why you say, when we look, but what does it mean? Why, why do we have to look? I mean, physics is not about us looking, right? And that's, by the way, since we are Marxist, this, is, of course, brings us to Lenin and Matthias Malambeo criticism um, right. and uh, the fact that and Berkeley idealism and all the idealist tradition, because when you analyze the, upper, the measuring device, actually what you do find is the measuring device is also in a superposed state, exactly like the cat. The measuring mm -hmm. device has both recorded the particle, let's say, not recorded the particle. So it's again from quantum mechanics in the position. So when we look, we are humans, but if you treat our brain and our eyes and so on quantum mechanically, then you're going to say, well, the brain is in a superposed state, okay? Mm -hmm. And then what comes and reduces the wave function? Aha, the consciousness. So now you are in pure idealism. That's straight to your concern, I suppose. Right, right, right. Which is Let's not get, yeah, I, I, that's, I think we'll, we will get to that one very quickly. Um, so I just wanted to go on to, on to the more sort of just another question about quantum uh, on the sort of science side of this, but before we get into the, the idealism and the philosoph philosophical side of things. Um, the other sort of uh, well-known, uh, I suppose, phenomenon or, or fact or any piece of information about quantum mechanics is how, uh, you know, you could have two quantum particles interact with each other over vast distances with, um, you know, no obvious or classical interaction. And uh, I wonder if you could talk to us about that. Yeah, that's that's related. Okay. Okay, but let me still add a word about, because you see, Einstein, <coughs> in 1949, there was a collection of essays where he explained his point of view. He did, you know, he made his autobiography, and, um, and then he, he said that, the problem he had with quantum mechanics is that it always reduces itself to Berkeley's maxim, SAS perceiving, to be is to be perceived. And, and that uh, I just wanted to mention that, not to forget the connection to pure Berkeleyan idealism. So Einstein objected to that because he didn't agree with, uh, with Berkeley. Anyway, so to come back to Bell and EPR Bell, okay? That's something which again was invented in 1935, both by Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen. That's one article and also by Schrodinger at the same time. And it was related to their dissatisfaction with quantum mechanics. Basically, what Einstein, okay, let me explain what it means. You can have two particles far apart. It's not really that they act on each other, it's more complicated. But you mm -hmm. do a measurement, and then the point is this. If you find, let's say, let's say that it has the result of measurement, let's say it has to do with spin, or never mind, it has two values, either up or down, or plus or minus. Let's say plus and minus. Okay, the result will be either plus or minus. And do the measurement on one particle, you know that if it's plus, then the other one will be minus and vice versa. 
You never okay. find two plus plus or two minus minus, the both minus or both plus. It's always either one plus and the other minus and vice versa. Then Einstein, Pedalski, and Rosen and Schrödinger too asked the following question. If, if, as all the orthodoxy demands, everything depends on the measurement and nothing exists before the measurement, then how comes that by doing a measurement on one particle, I can know with certainty what will happen to a distant particle far away? Mm -hmm. Then Einstein say either it's not the particle interacting on each other, but by interacting with one particle, I create the result because that's what measurements do, they create result. Well, I, I say it so that you when you do a measurement on one side, you know automatically what the result would be of the same measurement on the other side. Right. Yet the orthodoxy says that before there is a measurement, there is no fact of the matter as to what's going on, right? So if there is no fact of the matter, then by doing a measurement, you collapse the wave function, you create a definite result on one side, that's what the orthodoxy says, but then you must create the result on the other side too, no matter how far it is. So you have action at a distance, instantaneous action at a distance. And that's mm -hmm. something that profoundly bothers physicists. Newton, Newton, by the way, had action at a distance because if I move my arm, I change the distribution of matter in the universe, and according to Newton's theory, it affects the motion of every all bodies in the universe, no matter how far, instantaneously. But of course, in a way that's totally negligible because my arm does not move Jupiter very much. Mm -hmm. But in principle, it affects everything. And that's something that the contemporaries of Newton didn't like, including Descartes. And so they said, well, this is an occult property. Gravitation doesn't make any sense, etc." And actually, in the theory of relativity of Einstein, this unpleasant feature does not exist. And Einstein didn't like action at a distance at all. Relativity doesn't like that. And I mean, mm -hmm. there were many reasons not to like it. But according to, you know, ordinary quantum mechanics, it does exist unless, 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 and that's what Einstein uh, and Schrodinger thought, unless quantum mechanics is not complete. Meaning, particles have properties before they are measured, and the measurements simply discover their properties, just like mm -hmm. if you go in a room, and you see a table, and then you measure the length of the table. Well, if you're not an idealist, you think that the table had the length before you measure it, right? And so you think that particles have properties before they are measured. And that was the common sense answer. That's very interesting. That was the, the, the but Bohr totally missed the point. And Bohr gave an answer which is completely misunderstandable, ununderstandable, and it is universally accepted by physicists. It's very funny. When you listen to physicists telling you this story about Einstein and Bohr, they always side with, almost all of them side with Bohr, but they repeat something that doesn't make any sense and didn't make any sense with Bohr. And even Bohr sometimes admitted that he didn't express himself very clearly. Bohr was extremely obscure. And then he even says that in 49, 20, well, I didn't express myself very clearly, and then let me repeat, and then he repeats things which is equally unclear. It's really a fantastic story that physicists have preferred the, the, the Bohr sort of mush, mushy, wishy, I mean, not wishy, wishy, but mushy sort of talk instead of EPR, which was very clear. But then, 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 the big surprise came in 1964 with John Bell. Uh, Bell was an Irish physicist, and he was bothered by quantum mechanics, and he understood Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, and he said, can I uh, test, can I see whether it's possible to complete quantum mechanics or not? You see, whether there are other variables than just this mysterious wave function. 
and used this argument of EPR, and he came to the conclusion, which is a purely logical conclusion, that if there were such variables, then certain prediction of quantum mechanics would be violated. Okay, that's not so bad, but the problem is that later, people like Aspect and many other people have tested those specific predictions of quantum mechanics and found them to be true. So we're in a serious problem because EPR basically said either there is action at a distance or there must be some other variable called hidden variable, but never mind, some variable that complete the description of the quantum state. So that if I find plus one on one side and minus on the other side, both particles were plus or minus before I measure them. That was the common sense answer. And Bell says, no, 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 no. If you assume that, then you run into a contradiction with quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics is vindicated, so you run into a contradiction with facts, and therefore it's untenable. And if it's untenable, the only alternative is that there is action at a distance. That's an argument, in fact. I see. So at the moment of the action at a distance is still, uh, obviously that's how we conduct quantum mechanics experiments now, the sort of things that we do with quantum physics and quantum mechanics use that principle as far as I understand. So um, communication experiments. Mm -hmm. well, they, they, imply that, they, imply, they imply action at a distance, but the, this is again because EPR, the EPR argument is vastly misunderstood. The conclusion that you can draw from Bell's theory, Bell's theory, which of course he understood EPR, but uh, since people misunderstand EPR, they misunderstand Bell, and it's a big, I wrote many things about it, but it's a big mess. But what I'm telling you is what I think is the true truth. So okay, okay, okay. So let's let's get into the um, into the sort of philosophical side, and if I suppose we can come at it sort of straight straight on to where, where our, our point of interest is, is that obviously um, from a dialectical materialist sort of Marxist uh, perspective, um, you know, does or have the breakthroughs in quantum physics and quantum mechanics throughout the 20th century, whether it's the old stuff or even the more recent stuff. Um, does that affect or should it affect the world outlook and the scientific outlook of, of scientific socialist, of a Marxist uh, and Marxist-Leninist outlook? Okay, well, I'm not a Marxist and I have no sympathy for the dialectical part of dialectical materialism. But I have some sympathy for Lenin's book, Materialism and Imperial Criticism, which was not very dialectical, actually. He may use the word, but basically it was a return to classical 18th century materialism. And in particular, it was a theory that tended to be realistic. And I think deep in their heart, most physicists are realists, even though they may, when they discuss quantum mechanics, use idealist statement. So for me, the opposition, if you wish, is between some version of idealism, the most extreme form being Berkeleyan idealism, but Kant is also idealist and many uh, philosophers after that, sort mm -hmm. of, you know, it's all in our head and, uh, you know, and the, the real world is just a projection of our head. And then, of course, that fits with this idea that quantum mechanics is about observation, etc. And I, of course, think it's about the real world, etc. In that sense, I'm agreeing, agreeing with certain Marxists. But I don't see what dialectic, I never understood what dialectic means, really, and I don't see what dialectic does here. And the best example I can give is that at the time of all these debates on quantum mechanics, there were two people. One was Bohm and the other was Rosenfeld. Bohm was somebody very interesting who rediscovered the Breuil's theory and he developed it and he made it more coherent. I mean, the, the Breuil 
didn't really believe his own theory and he abandoned it. But Bohm really developed it. But Bohm had been linked to communists during the war. He was an American. And then he was a victim of the McCarthyite witch hunt after the war. And he had to, he was basically kicked out of Princeton. And then he had to go to Brazil where he found a job. He wasn't very happy about it. Mm-hmm. Then from then he moved to Israel and then to England. But he has never had much, you know, recognition. Uh, although privately many physicists praised him as somebody extremely smart. But, uh, so, but he was at least originally a Marxist and he wrote a book Causality and Chance in Physics, which is maybe the best Marxist-inspired books about philosophy of physics that I know. And mm-hmm. um, so, he, But then there was another guy, Rosenfeld, who was Belgian, actually. He was also a Marxist, and he was working with Bohm. And he was the most violent opponent of Bohm. Uh, he was working with Bohm, sorry, in Copenhagen after the war. And uh, mm-hmm. he was the most violent opponent of Bohm that you can imagine. He was really insulting, insulting to, in his letter to Bohm. But they were both Marxist. Moreover, they were both interested in dialectics. <laughs> so, so it looks strange, no? And what, what Rosenfeld interpreted dialectics to mean in, in quantum mechanics was the fact that you, because of this thing that you, it's all about measuring, measuring uh, results of experiments, uh, you can't do two experiments at the same time, let's say. And if you do one experiment first, you may affect the result of the second, or at least the prediction of the second, and vice versa. And that's called complementarity by Bohr. I mean, of course, it's not, it's not complementarity in the usual sense that you could say, I have a picture of the front of somebody and the back of somebody, and they're complementary because they give you a whole picture of the person. No, no, because they are contradictory. You, you measure either one property or the other, but not both. If you measure one, you perturb the result of the other. That's the standard quantum mechanics. It's very well explained in, in the Breitbaum theory. But, but uh, Rosenfeld thought that that's dialectics. Okay? Mm. Bohr, uh, Bohm, sorry, <laughs> there are so many Bohm, but Bohm uh, thought dialectics there meant this holiness, the fact that everything is interconnected, as I try to explain. Because in his theory, before, before actually Bell proved that there must be this interconnectedness of this action at a distance, Boom theory or the void boom theory have this action at a distance in, incorporated in them. So it's a quality because they actually predict what, I mean, they incorporate what Bell shows was true. Mm. But of course, many people didn't like that. In particular, Einstein didn't like that. Schrodinger didn't like that. So they didn't like the void boom theory because of mm. that property. But boom, so that was dialectics. So my problem with that is what is dialectics? I mean, you have totally two different people and really totally opposite. They're both Marxists and they're both interested in dialectics. So which one is this? To me, mm. it, seems to be, it's very, it seems to be useless to, pro, to come with a well-defined theory, uh, you know, and, and project it on your, on your physics. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we don't know, I mean, uh, you know, there I have to agree with uh, Bohr, who said to Einstein, who are we to tell God? how to make the world. I mean, of course, that was a joke. Mm-hmm. But, but, I mean, you know, we don't know how the world is, so we shouldn't come with prejudice from philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the issue of realism is different because if you are really idealist, then there's really no point in physics. Because, of course, you are assuming to, there is a world, you want to study the world. And in fact, I think Bohr would agree with that. Bohr, well, at some point, you see the, 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 the Soviet were critical of quantum mechanics because they were critical of Bohr's idealism. Mm-hmm. And then 
Bohr, Rosenfeld, or somebody, he was asking somebody, what do they criticize me for? Well, because your theorist looks uh, idealist, solipsist, etc. And Bohr said, well, the, this is trivial. Of course, we, physicists are concerned with the world, etc. He, he just mm-hmm. didn't express himself very clearly. He didn't have a clear idea of what his own theory implied. But of course, physicists, I mean, there are idealist physicists, but there are not that many. And I think if you go, if you dig into it, it's really people who express themselves badly. But of course, they express themselves badly to students, and then the students repeat that, and, and it's a big mess. So, so is that... It's, not, it's a big mess, but it's not that they would really make a philosophy a la, a la Berkeley. I see. So, so is, is that the, the sort of main problem then with this in, this, in the philosophical side of these things, that it's, uh, if you actually pushed the physicists to define themselves as realists and, and not idealists and, and not metaphysicists, or um, that they actually are realists, they would uh, sit on the same side, but they are just poor yeah, expression. It's more that they would say, oh, don't bother me with philosophy. You know, that's for philosophers, not serious people. We are physicists, we do computation, we do serious stuff. I mean, you know, there was a slogan. I mean, before the war, that must be said about the difference between Europe and the U.S. Before the war, of course, phys- physics was done in Europe, you know, but then because of Nazism and then, of course, uh, uh, the war and then also communism, many people fled to the United States. And then in the U.S., the mentality was much more pragmatic. You know, let's get money, let's get grants from the defense department. And uh, mm. uh, and then there was this slogan, shut up and calculate. Okay, so if you ask questions about quantum mechanics, they say shut up and calculate. And that was more or less how I was educated, of course, much later in the 70s. Mm. People had this attitude, oh, let's not worry. Bohr, I mean, one of my professors said, oh, Bohr answered all those questions, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd like to bring um, uh, P in to ask his questions, obviously, uh, and get more depth of the technical stuff. But uh, my, my, my sort of last last thing for myself, uh, Jean, is um, it'll be uh, three parts. Uh, first, obviously, what what are the big uh, questions and experiments uh, in the sort of quantum mechanics world right now? Um, if not right now, what are the ones coming? If there aren't anything, if there's nothing exciting coming now, what is coming? Um, where is the expertise right now in the world? So is it China? Is it the US? And then with the planned experiments and with the expertise wherever it is, um, what is the potential? Where is quantum physics taking us? Uh, and what, well, what sort of do you see for, see for human development? Well, they, okay, that's a very vast question. A lot of questions. There's been a lot of agitation in physics about string theories and all kinds of very fancy mathematical theories but it's not clear that they lead anywhere, and it's not, certainly not clear that there are experiments to test them. But then there are, you know, there, there is several applications of quantum information. People, the big thing now is quantum information, which all, all that comes from the 1935 Einstein-Polotsky-Rosen article. Einstein-Polotsky-Rosen was totally misunderstood, ignored by Bohr, despised by Bohr, misrepresented by the vast majority of physicists, is now the most quoted article by Einstein of all his articles, including those on relativity. So it's really funny. I don't think people quite completely understand that article, but it's, you know, everybody mentions it because they do quantum. So there are three things. There is quantum cryptography, which already exists. So you can sort of uh, have a secure code, if you wish, which are more secure than anything you can do classically. Then mm-hmm. there is uh, quantum... Quantum communication? Well, yeah, there is quantum communication. There is 
yeah, there's, if you wish, there's, that's one thing, secure communications. There's quantum teleportation, which is really theoretical. Well, it can be done with small objects, but it's, it's, a, it's a, you can so take a particle and then put it, it's like a Star Trek or something. I mean, I'm not very right. science fiction, but you, you go in a machine and then they put you on the other side of the moon instantly. I mean, that's, that's fantasy. It's not going what, to happen now. It's not going to happen now, but, but you can do it maybe with a photon. Have they done it with a photon? Have they teleported a... Yeah, yeah you can, I'm not following that, but I think you can teleport. I mean, meaning you, of course, you need, you don't create the photon, you you create the state. You can sort of teleport the state. So you can have these entangled particles and use that to teleport another state. And then, of course, the big thing is quantum computers, because if you had quantum computers, you could do computation much faster than we do. For example, all the secret information that they have in the Pentagon and so on, it's all based on, on, on classical keys. I mean, I can't explain that, but it's sort of, it requires, to break the key, you would have to find the factors in the product of two very large prime numbers. So you take a prime number with 50 digits or whatever, you multiply it by another one, and then it's very impossible to find the, 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 you know, the numbers from the product. But if you knew the number from the product, then you could decode all kinds of secret messages. Almost every, all the data in the banks, in the Pentagon, everywhere, in the MI6 and so on, everything mm. would be decoded, very funny. And if you had quantum computers, then you could break, because it was so fast that you can break, break those things. So you would have quantum computers, all the secret encoded data in the world <laughs> go for bust. I mean, very funny. I see. That. But they, they can't do that now. And it's not clear that they can, but the Chinese, the Chinese, I mean, it's really amazing that this country, which had, you know, which was so underdeveloped in 1949, because they don't, well, you can discuss whether they're socialist or not, but, the, but certainly that country now has beaten Google on, uh -huh. on the quantum computer. They, they're better computer. So, I mean, they're, still, they're still very elementary. They don't do, you know, what I'm saying they could do in principle, but but they do more than Google. And, and when you look at the Europeans, for example, or the Brits for that matter, but Europe, with this whole bureaucracy and everything, they, they're not able to do that. What we say about the GAFAM, we say, well, maybe we should tax them, but you know, we can't compete with uh, Google, uh, Amazon, and so on. And the Chinese, so, so, the center of, so the center of quantum computing or quantum uh, quantum science, I should, I should call it, um, is, is then China or the US? In both, but I think it's moving towards China, but not to Europe. That's what is shocking. I mean, all these GAFAM, we are just trying to maybe tax them, but even that we can't do. And uh, mm -hmm. and we can't imitate them. We can't produce the same company. I don't understand why. We have the know-how in principle. And uh, it's just because uh, we give up on that. The Chinese, have the, the Chinese have the analog of Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, they have this big uh, you know, distribution company. I forget the name. And then mm -hmm. Alibaba or something. And then uh, mm -hmm. there are things that go beyond Google. So... Okay, brilliant. So I think I think I think I think we've covered our questions that we've discussed where we think the center of, of quantum yes. physics is. Um, just on if on any final thoughts on that particular thing, though, um, where do you see the human development for it? Do human potential for quantum physics or quantum science or the application of of that to human development? Do you see anything uh, personally there? But there are enormous applications. You see, because everything that you all your portable, the communication we have now already use uh, quantum or more 
owner, I mean, owner quantum physics. There is the second quantum revolution, which is based on these EPR ideas, but the usual quantum revolution already uses the so-called tunnel effect, and that's at the basis of transistors and super, I mean, and there are also superconductors. There are zillions of all, all the modern technologies rely on quantum physics. So, so, but of course, I'm interested in a more conceptual aspect, a more, you might call philosophically, but I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And my concern is mostly because students are told generation after generation things that don't make sense and that they repeat, and I found it very sad. I see. That's my, that's my problem. Yeah, I see. So, there's, so you think there should be a breakthrough first in the understanding and and so maybe the discarding of some bad no, habits. No, 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 no. It couldn't be parallel. It's just, it's just a little irritant that people don't understand and they say all kinds of things that they don't really mean. I see, I see. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll bring in a P then to ask his questions. Obviously, P is a grad student uh, in the field. Um, so are you with us there, P? Are you still with us? Okay, so I'll just start. Uh, yeah, okay. So, um, in the standard uh, interpretation, uh, what is the physical interpretation of the wave function? As I say, it's only a way to predict results of measurement. People have a sort of a picture of it. They say, well, it's a, you know, the wave function is a little blob, and then the particle is not localized in one place, etc. But the minute you have two particles, it doesn't work. Because as you know, that's more for P, but... Uh, but the wave function is defined on configuration space, not on real space. So it's not even an object which can be interpreted as a wave in the in the ordinary sense of uh, of a wave in the, in the real world, in the real space. Okay, and so um, and so, uh, what is Bovian mechanics? Yeah, I told you it's uh, simply you had simply the fact that particle move. It's a complete. You see, it's not an alternative to quantum mechanics. It's it's a, it's a completion of quantum mechanics. Instead of taking ordinary quantum mechanics, which doesn't say anything about particles moving, going from one hole, through one hole or the other, or moving from one place to the other, just this is all supposed to be, well, if you don't measure something, it doesn't exist, etc. In the Bohmian mechanics, something exists, simply particles move. Just as simple as that. Somebody, somebody wants us to summarize quantum Bohmian mechanics then the same way uh, Babbitt made this thing uh, look, you know, look particles, don't look waves. The answer is it's matter in motion. Quantum mechanics yeah. and boom is just quantum matter in motion. <laughs> okay, and so how does Bohmian mechanics interpret the wave function? There's a guiding wave. It guides the particle, it guides the motion of the particle. Okay, and so how does this theory produce the same predictions? as the standard theory? Well, you see, if you have a deterministic theory, of course, if you really fix the initial condition, because Bohm is deterministic, so if you fix the initial condition, there is nothing random in the result. But then, of course, if you set an ensemble, if you set, like in statistical mechanics, if you set a set of initial conditions, then, of course, you get a set of final conditions, uh, which then have a probability. You can assume... You have to put a probability on the initial data, but when you reproduce an experiment, you never reproduce it exactly the same. You cannot do that for reasons that have to do with quantum mechanics, and therefore you always get a set of, uh, when you repeat, you get a different initial condition, and then you get also a different result. And this... ...fit the, you know, the, the quantum mechanics. 
Okay. And, um, and so how, what are Heisenberg's uncertainty relation and, uh, and how does, um, how do the theories interpret these? Heisenberg uncertainty relation was very interesting because it's called uncertainty, but Bohr wanted to call them indeterminacy. He wanted to say uncertainty is usually, it's, it's very confused again. It's basically people are saying, well, you can't measure position and momentum at the same time. Because you measure one, then you affect the result of the other. And people make a big fuss out of it. But if it's stated like that, I don't even understand what's the point. Because obviously, in order to measure, for us to measure something, you must interact with a big measuring device, with a small object, which is the, the particle. Then, of course, you are going to affect it and affect its future behavior and affect its future measurement. I never saw anything mysterious to that. But Heisenberg quantifies that in the following way. The statistics of the result of position measurement and the statistics of the measure of the measurement of velocity, let's say it's called momentum, but let's say velocity, the product of those, I mean, the statistics can be defined by a number called the variance. I mean, there's a certain way how much spread out the statistics are and the spread of those, the product of the spread of the measurement of one, namely the position, and the measurement of the other, namely the velocity, the product of the two is must be bigger than some number. And that's what Heisenberg showed. Or he didn't really show it, but people showed it based on these ideas. And, and that's really the all there is. And it's certainly perfect. And it's a prediction of quantum mechanics. And of course, it's reproducing Bohm theory because Bohm theory is quantum mechanics, just completed. And okay. in, order, in order interpretation, it's not clear at all what it means. Because not clear at all what, is, uh, what is, uh, the wave function means. But mathematically, okay. it's a problem. And, um, and uh, what is absolute uncertainty in Bohmian mechanics? Oh, that's a word which is from articles from my friend, Dürer, Gostein, and Zangin. But... Uh, uh, how can I say that? Absolute uncertainty refers to the fact that you cannot control the position of particles beyond a certain degree, and that degree has to do with quantum mechanics. But I, I, I'd rather not go into that. It just means that there's a certain uncertainty in nature. It's related to Heisenberg inequalities, certain uncertainty in nature that you cannot control, you see. Uh, the same way you can't control uh, a coin unless you are very specialized, you have a machine to do that. I mean, if you throw a coin, you toss a coin, then you can't control it the way you want uh, for it to fall heads or tail. It's, a, it's in, somewhat similar to that. Okay. And yeah, um, the coins are machines that can actually focus things so well that they actually give the result that you want, but, but ordinary humans most of the time can't do that. And, and in quantum mechanics, it's universal. There's no machine that would go beyond this uncertainty. Okay. And um, earlier you were talking about the uh, EPR uh, thought experiment and Bell's inequality. Right. Um, and this tells us that uh, our world is non-local. Yes. And how does... And how is... Um, how, how do these theories uh, reflect this uh, property of nature? Well, in the, it's become a bit technical, but in the, the Breitbaum theory, the guiding, if you have two particles under certain circumstances, which are the one that you have in the EPR Bell situation, 
the guiding of the particle is a join guide. The wave function guides both particles at once. Because it guides one, both particles at one, if you affect one particle, you affect the other. Because the wave function connects them. Sort of a bridge between them, even though the bridge can be very long, very shallow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, you were talking about how uh, how in the standard theory, when you um, when you measure uh, a super um, uh, uh, a state which is a superposition, yeah. one of them one of them collapses. Yeah. How does and how does Bohmian mechanics account for this collapse? Collapse. Of course, there is no real collapse in Bohmian mechanics, but there is an effective collapse. Basically, when you do a measurement, the wave function of the system separates into two parts, which are then located rather far apart and become connected. Entangled is the proper word, but connected to the measuring device of the measuring the 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 wave function of the measuring device. And then, you know, I mean, this is in my book. You can read my book. It becomes too complicated for a podcast like this because the podcast is for everybody. But basically, you don't have a real collapse, but you have an effective collapse. So that in practice, when there is quantum mechanics, collapse in quantum mechanics, then you can apply that rule confidently, but there is no mystery because the wave from the particle, there is a fact of the matter as to whether the cat is alive or dead, if you wish, or whether the pointer or the result of a measurement indicates plus or minus or whatever the result is. So there is a fact of the matter, and the wave function that sort of the, if the cat is alive, the wave function of the cat dead just doesn't play any role anymore, so you can take the wave function of the cat alive to predict the future behavior of the cat. In practice, that okay. Does, does Bohmian mechanics account for uh, relativity? Well, it all depends what you mean by relativity, you see. If you mean relativistic uh, predictions of quantum field theory, then the answer is yes. But in a sense, the theory is not relativistic in sort of deep sense. But again, you become very technical. But if you are worried about the predictions of relativity and whether there is a Bohmian theory, Bohmian quantum theory that accounts for them, yes, then the answer is yes. But relativity, okay. is, I suggest that you read the article by Bell called How to Teach Special Relativity in the in his collection of articles called Speakable and Unspeakable in Quantum Mechanics, because this theory is really, uh, relativity is a subtle issue, and what you mean by relativity is subtle, actually. But if you just mean the prediction again, because physicists don't need to talk about prediction, then you can get the predictions. Okay, and... Uh what are some reasons that someone would would consider the consider Bohmian mechanics? What are the reasons? Yeah, uh, making sense of the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, you see, <laughs> if you if you are a physicist, it seems to me you want. I mean, I had the problem when I was a student. I had the problem when I was a student. <coughs> I did not understand what this business about looking and. Uh, human beings had to do with the world and all this. And I did not understand. And nobody could. If I went to the professor, they dismissed me or they didn't answer. They did not answer. They, if you look in the books, there is no answer. So, of course, I, I just want to make sense of quantum mechanics. That's the title of my book, and that's what I wanted to do. And I'm not the only one. I mean, if I was just crazy, oh, he's a bad student, he's not understood. That's what people say, oh, he's a bad student. 
But then when you are a little older and feel like you can uh, dig deeper into these things and uh, you know ask people what they mean and they say you're a bad student, then you realize that they don't know what they mean. Oh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, how has Bohmian mechanics been received by, uh, by the scientific community and uh, what are the reasoning behind their reception? Well, why is, maybe, why is, well, okay, in 1952 it was not received at all, but part of the reason was that Bohm had been dismissed already because of his political views and also he was living in Brazil. And so in Brazil, uh, it was uh, backwaters at that time, and then he went to Israel, which was also some backwater at that time. And he, he didn't get much recognition. There was no interest. There was interest in the Soviet uh, Union. Of course, there was also interest in Paris around the world. But uh, other than that, no. And I said the reaction from people like Heisenberg, Pauli, uh, uh, Rosenfeld, and were very hostile. Though we don't know, actually. We don't know what his reaction would have was. Even Einstein was lukewarm, so uh, they were all, the reactions were really very negative. And of course, but the same thing was with Bell. People didn't pay any attention to Bell. Now, people didn't pay attention to EPR, but now many articles quote EPR. So slowly, people realize what Bell said. And then if you accept Bell, then you can start and understand EPR, then you can start to see Bohm in a more positive way. So when I go to conferences on quantum mechanics, of course, they're organized by my friends, but Bohmian mechanics always discussed now. It's still, people are still against it, and there are lots of silly objections, which I, some of which I list in my book, but but uh, I think things are changing. People who don't have prejudice, younger people who don't have prejudice, appreciate the quality of it if they wonder what it means, and maybe you'll become Bohmian yourself if you already study it. <laughs> okay, and... Um... Is Bohmian mechanics a realistic theory? And uh, what does that mean? Well, realistic uh, just doesn't mean very much. It just means that you are talking about the world and not about your perception of the world. That's all it means. Of course, it's talking about the world and not your perception. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, there are not that many alternatives. I mean, one alternative is so-called Gerard W, Gerard Rimini Weber, where you have to modify quantum mechanics, but you do it in a subtle way so that it can't be tested, which is not really good. And then the other thing is many worlds, which for various reasons doesn't make any sense. I, I can explain that, but I'm tired, so I can't explain that. But okay. Okay. Well, uh, I guess you're... Okay, if you're tired, then uh, I think... No, no, I think that's, okay. We that's okay. I mean, I can't go into a whole discussion about many worlds, but I can answer mm -hmm. if you still have questions. Uh, I think we covered a lot of it, so... Okay. Um, I think this might questions? be a good one. Are you done with that? Um, questions? Would you, would you like one yeah, final think, question? Um, no, I think we covered most of it, so I think we're probably good. Okay. Uh, unless you think that one of these would, uh, one of these uh, we haven't I think, covered. I think I think just on the last point that um, Jean was covering there, um, you said that obviously they were rejected for the ideas. Um, obviously, you mentioned because he was in Brazil. Uh, he was in the quote-unquote backward part of the world. Was that the only factor at play, or was it also uh, something of an orthodoxy, an established orthodoxy, and this guy? Yeah, it's all explained. There's a physicist called Clauser who described the atmosphere at that time, and it was related to the Cold War because there were these orthodoxies. You see, of course, very anti-communist orthodoxy, 
the Cold War mentality, and then Bohm mm -hmm. was communist, so that was a problem. He had been a victim of McCarthyism, but the physicists wouldn't, wouldn't like to mention him, and De Bruyne was dismissed, and Einstein and Schrödinger were considered a senile. So all the discussion got out, and it was said, shut up and compute, don't ask questions, etc. That was the mentality in the 50s. And then, of course, it changed a little bit in the 60s, but not very much. And I think it's changing slowly, but not, not as fast as I would like to. But uh, now mm -hmm. it's changing because these orthodoxies are no longer there. But uh, yes. no, Boom suffered a lot. Boom suffered a lot. Boom is really one of the most tragic figures in the history of physics, as far as I know. See. I mean, and not people who died, but. See, and just to clarify, I, I might, might have missed this, but Bohm is obviously this having a, a somewhat of a revival then in terms of quantum mechanics understanding. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. there, is a, there is definitely a revival, but it's marginal because the majority of people don't care. Among the people who care, many people are interested in Bohm, but the attitude of most people is still we don't care. See. It's, not, it's not so much that they're against, it's much that they don't, be, don't want to be bothered with what they call philosophy. I see, I see. Okay, so the, yes, the orthodox in that sense is... is, is, is philosophers, philosophers of science, a good philosopher of science, Tim Mardin, for example, but the good ones are quite all right. I mean, they, many of them are following uh, Boom, of course, except in Oxford. But I see. They believe in uh, many worlds, but... Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I, have, I have no further questions. I think uh, uh, I've got lots of things to read and, and, and to consider. I've, I've enjoyed this thoroughly, Jean. Um, P, I assume you're done as well, so thank you for your questions, P, and um, yeah, you are off done. Thank you. So you will send me the link to the... To the yes, yes, I'll send you a link to that. So thank you very much, uh, P, and thank you very much, Jean. Thank you very much. Okay. Take it easy, Richard. Thanks. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.